Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where providing personalized, highly skilled, and compassionate spine care has been our specialty for over 75 years. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakia. Growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio, I played a ton of basketball. I love playing basketball. And I got to tell you, I wish I had our guest today. I wish I had him around when I was younger to help me stay healthy and protect my back. I remember growing up dealing with low back pain after practices, taking charges, getting run over. I remember my dad taking me to get shots in my back. And I really didn't have any understanding about low back pain when I was in high school and on the varsity basketball team. In fact, I remember our training really was focused on basic strength training, sprints, and stretches. And there was no science discussed. There was no nutritional science. There was no exercise science. So today I'm very pleased to bring to our listeners an interview with Jake Beeman, who's a physical therapy assistant at Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates. Uh, Jake works in our Concord office. Jake is has been fully licensed for about four years. He's certified in kinesio tape, Graston level one with experience as well in Tai Chi free rehabilitation. Prior to that, he was a personal trainer, a collegiate wrestler at Appalachian state. And for four years, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu and mixed martial art assistant coach. Currently he's an avid CrossFitter with plans on becoming a level one certified CrossFit coach. So today Jake is going to enlighten us on really how to protect your back if you're into athletics at any age, but if you're in the teenage up through 20s and 30s range, or even just a weekend warrior, I think you're going to learn quite a bit today. So Jake, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, it's uh, awesome to be here. I always like to begin the interviews, giving our listeners a kind of a personal experience or a sense as to what drove you into the, the world of spine care that you're in. Can you give us just a little bit of history and help the listeners get to know a little more about you? Uh, yeah, for sure. I originally uh, went to App State. I wrestled there and I was going to college for civil engineering. And uh, I did an internship in which I shadowed somebody who worked for the county up there uh, near App State. And I began to see that they really, all they did was review site plans on a computer put a rubber stamp on it, and then go to the next one. And I realized that, you know, my in my head, I was going to be out in the field and supervising these highways being built and these great things being done and realizing that um, that was not what was going to happen. And so that led me to kind of, you know, stumble around a bit for a year, just doing some general education stuff. And I was fortunate enough to have a great aunt who was uh, an assistant to the director of Forsyth Memorial Hospital in Winston-Salem. And uh, she knew I was big into fitness and with wrestling. And she said, come down. I want you to shadow a physical therapist for a day and see what you think. And I said, okay. So I go down there and um, I got really lucky. Um, I got to shadow a couple of therapists that day. And watching them being able to heal people through movement and exercise 
um, was so beautiful to me. It was so cool. And it was, uh, it was so human, you know, to use your own body to heal your own body, you know, which, which is what I loved about it. And so I became drawn to that field and realized the best way for me to get into the field is, uh, as quick as possible and, and to get my hands on patients and to practice was to be an assistant. And so I applied to Central Piedmont right here in Charlotte. And uh, I went through their program, um, graduated from there, and then been practicing ever since. Describe to our listeners kind of your typical day at, uh, at our offices. Um, so usually I see anywhere from 12 to 15 patients. It's 30-minute to 45-minute slots. Um, we see a pretty good variety, um, but obviously mostly spinal focus. So, um, post-op cervical fusions, uh, post-op lumbar fusions, uh, microdisectomies, laminectomies, things like that. Um, but I also am fortunate enough to get a decent amount of athletes who come to us with low back pain, neck pain. Um, I also get a lot of patients from physiatrists, like yourself, um, for patients who are, you know, lumbar strains, um, you know, neck injuries that are seeking to not go the route of surgery, um, in which I'm definitely really poised to make sure we can make a difference there. So I met with you at our recent holiday party and that was really the first time I got to know you. And you came up to me with passion in your eyes and you're basically like, listen, I got to get, I got to get on the air and share with people my story and my passion. And you really emphasized to me then that if people had enough information, you could prevent back injuries up front and you notice a lot of mistraining going on in the fitness world. And you're really just chomping at the bit to correct some misinformation that's out there in the fitness field and in the athletic arena. So number one, I want to I thank you for reaching out to me and uh, I'm really excited here to share your information and your story. You know, with your background, you tend to suggest that most athletes do not train correctly with respect to their spine. What are some of the reasons athletes tend to injure your back? And I know you had kind of three specific categories. So why don't we kind of tick these off one by one for our listeners? Uh, Yeah, of course. The main thing I think is just a lack of understanding of what core strengthening is, how the core is involved in training in general and in human movement and in within sports in itself. Also, I think one of the big things that people tend to not have is they have a lot of asymmetries. So people playing your sport typically makes you, you know, one side dominant. And then throughout your life, you're usually one side dominant. And so you start adding these, you know, dominance and, you know, leg and pelvis position or, you know, a dominance to drive off of one leg versus another whenever you're sprinting or, for instance, in football, when you're, you know, charging for a ball or trying to jump for a catch and you start to get, you know, shifts in your pelvis, shifts in your thoracic spine, your lumbar spine, and uh, those muscles start getting, you know, not aligned and symmetrical anymore. And then that leads to, you know, mechanical breakdowns once you start putting repetitive stress on those tissues. Um, And then last, I think that there's still, it's starting to change. I think there's a little bit of a revolution starting to happen in the fitness industry where people are taking, you know, mobility seriously. They're starting to actually grasp what core is and we're getting away from this no pain no gain axiom which i hate i'm not a fan of that whenever patients come to me and i'm training them they're like oh this should hurt and i'm like no Uh, a little bit of soreness muscular discomfort maybe but there should be no pain with your training my mission on back talk doc is to educate mostly non-medical personnel and arm them with information on how to protect their back and protect their spine or treat their injuries 
So let's break down a little bit some of what you just went through. Number one, there's people out there who are probably saying, what is the core? And I, I myself have read multiple definitions of this, but what do you consider to be the core muscle system of our body? Yeah, so I mean, so basically you can break down the core in a, you know, anatomical muscle sense, we can point to specific muscles and go, this is the core. But I like to think of the core and a lot of the experts that I, literature I kind of read and like to think of the core as this. So it's keeping your trunk, specifically your trunk, stable while you can manipulate and specifically in athletic field, manipulate forces around your trunk while it can provide as a, a stable platform for you to be able to conduct these forces like running, jumping, squatting, without having unwanted motions or movements that translate into your spine. Anatomically, I like to tell patients uh, that if you put the spine in a box, that the size of the box essentially represent the core muscle system. So you correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think we look at the abdominal muscles in the front, uh, so the rectus abdominis muscles, the transverse abdominis is extremely important. It goes kind of side to side. Then you have the angled muscles, the, the obliques. And then, of course, the gluteal muscles, which Ryan Klemperens talked in great detail about on, uh, I think, our second episode. And we can link to that in the show notes as well. And then from the posterior or the back of the body, we have the strap muscles. And then deeper to the strap muscles, we have very small muscles that help rotate the spine called the multifidi. And then on top of the box, I would say, is your diaphragm, which is basically the main muscle for breathing and respiration. And then the floor of the core, would, do you consider the pelvic muscles as playing an integral role in supporting healthy and safe spinal movements? I do. And I would also lump in there, um, they get overlooked, but I really think, especially when you're making torque on a barbell, for instance, if you are uh, an avid strength trainer or a power lifter, the, the lats, the lats provide a secondary function where they do create a lot of stability, especially when you're doing back squats or front squats um, or even deadlifts. So the lats, those are the big muscles that give the bodybuilders kind of that V-shaped look, correct? And yes. then also we'll see them in swimmers, Yes, right? Like Michael Phelps, huge lats. Uh, so that's a really good point. And that, that muscle essentially runs from your arm to your spine and down to your, your pelvis. I mean, it covers a massive amount of geography of the, of the spine. So thanks for including that. Okay, so if you're an athlete at home, a weekend warrior, how do you, and you're sitting around listening to this podcast, how do you know is your core strong? The way I kind of define a core being strong is, you know, can you perform the functional movements in day-to-day you know, life, such as in squatting, hip hinging, jumping. And while you're doing these motions, maintain a stable trunk. You're not lopsided when you jump. You're not, when you squat, you're not going to one side. You're, you know, your trunk's not leaning. Is there a specific test that someone can do that's very simple to just determine how stable their core is? Is there something like a doctor can use in the office and tell a patient, hey, stand on one leg for 10 seconds or anything that comes to mind that can be a really quick check for an individual to know, do they need work or need to work with a physical therapist? Uh, Yeah, you could do starting supines easy. So having a patient lay on their back and then cueing them to tighten their abdominals and then just seeing if they can pick both knees up off the table and bring them towards their chest and down or even having them straighten one leg and lift that leg up and come down and maintain core integrity. So when you're feeling on their stomach, it's not given out. You know, they're able to keep tension in their stomach. And that's a relatively uh, simple move. 
typically for athletes, my go-to would be plank possibly or something along those lines to see how long they could hold or how they could tolerate being in that position. Does how you breathe affect the stability of your core? Yes, very much so. So you uh, diaphragmatic breathing specifically has been shown in studies to stimulate the multifidi and several muscles in the core. And I do think it's a it's great to learn that method of breathing in general and stop being a chest breather. But another thing that I found that I think it's important that no one ever taught me um, was when you're doing a heavy lift. So there are sports that I'll go into later that I do still think require heavy strength training, specifically if you want to be a power lifter or if you want to be a football player or if you want to be an Olympic lifter then you're going to need to heavy weight train. And so there is a maneuver that you need to be able to perform, which is the ability to, some people call it a Valsalva maneuver, but I, I think it's, a, it's something similar to that, but not quite the same. It's the ability to intake a bunch of air, filling up your stomach with air, and then you have to be able to contract your abdominals while doing this. And I like to uh, compare it to, if you take an empty soda can, you stand on one leg, crushes. Yes. If you fill your you know, diaphragm and everything up with air, you contract, that's a full soda can that you haven't opened yet. You stand on it, you got plenty of strength and, and, and plenty of uh, resistance in that can. And so you liken that to a lifter. They have done studies that people's one rep max on their back squat, their deadlift, and, and even their bench press has increased by using this method. Now, granted, you are holding your breath, so the rep scheme should be one to three reps. So you don't want to lock that thing down and go try to hit 10 reps. You know what I mean? You're going to end up hurting yourself. But, you know, I was always taught, you know, you breathe in on the way down and out on the way up. And that's great if you're doing, you know, pretty moderate weight. But once you start getting to heavy weight, you need to be able to fill your abdominal wall with air and contract and really make yourself nice and stable. And that helps. Does this breathing technique have a name to it? I, I want to say this, just call the Valsalva maneuver. They just reference it as that. But, you know, and that's kind of the, the tricky part of it. I don't ever remember anyone ever giving me a name. And I managed to bumble all the way up into a college-level lifting program before I uh, luckily had a coach walk over and tell me that. And I was in my second year of wrestling. So. Great. We're, we're going to dub that the beam and breathing method. <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, we'll see if we can put a link to that in the show notes. No, appreciate that. Listen, if you're out there, please try this only under the supervision of a physical therapist or personal trainer, someone who knows what they're doing. I don't want you going to the gym tomorrow, putting on heavy stacks of weights and trying this method. Uh, This is pretty high level stuff that he's sharing with you. Okay. So the second element that you discussed earlier about reasons why athletes tend to injure their back is muscle symmetry or asymmetry. A couple questions follow up to that. Do you think an exercise like yoga can help people feel more balanced in their muscle tone? I want to answer that is yes and no. So the reasons I want to say that, yes, yoga does, because certainly it helps with, you know, allowing yourself to have symmetrical mobility, obviously, because yoga, that's one of its main focuses, making you more mobile throughout your body. But something awesome that yoga does do is static holds in different positions that does help, you know, build core strength and just overall ability to stay more stable. But where yoga kind of falls a little bit short and where I would have an athlete do more than just yoga or a weekend warrior is there is no dynamic movement. So we're not getting side to side. We're not getting multidirectional. You're typically on a mat or standing in one position and you're just doing these holds in those positions. You're not doing movement with it. What sport do you feel like creates the most muscle asymmetry and the biggest problems? I want to start off by saying pretty much any sport, but the two that I see in clinic that I can personally vouch for, actually I have really three, but um, I wrote two here, but I'm going to go with three. So golf, which I know we're going to touch on later, uh, baseball, specifically pitchers, you know, the one arm throwing action, they're doing a lot of torque through their body that way. And then last, I tend to see it a lot. And recently I've had 
I've been graced uh, to be lucky enough to work with this uh, young athlete, a seven-foot basketball player who repeatedly dunks on the same side over and over and over, and that cost him some asymmetries. Okay, elaborate on golf, because that's probably the most popular sport in this area, at least in terms of reason why men come to the office because they can no longer swing a golf club and their back hurts. So actually me and another therapist in my clinic, we always kind of go back and forth, but I, I would almost dub, you know, and this is just a, from what I've seen that golf is really one of the hardest things on your back. You need to have a lot of rotational force. You need to have a lot of coordination in your body. And a lot of times, you know, these guys who are these weekend warriors, most of the time, or, or they're playing golf, they don't have the thoracic mobility. They're not really warming up. It's, it's, it's considered a casual fun game to go outside and play, but there's a lot of mobility and coordination you need to swing that club and if you're not warmed up and ready and you go out there definitely a high chance to injure yourself what about runners do you feel like running can help or hinder this problem so i think running would probably hinder it would hinder it to a degree and this is why so when you run you can think about your form and running and heel strike and and keeping good pattern and that's all great once you start to fatigue the body likes to seek and find the path to least resistance it's going to go with what's the laziest easiest way that jay can run this 5k or jay can run this mile today and once that happens we're immediately going to fall back into where our asymmetries are so if i'm more you know locked down in my right glute and my right legs more dominant then i'm going to Start running with that leg more. I'm going to spend less time on my left leg. I'm not going to heel strike properly with my left leg. And that's going to actually, running is going to reinforce that, I think. Which again, I, I think these points really illustrate how someone can benefit from working with an expert before they start a specific sport training program. Then the third point you mentioned about why people injure their back or why athletes injure their back is the excessive non-essential training. Let's go ahead and get into that a little more. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, Stuart McGill, who's one of my favorite guys, he's a professor in Waterloo at a university out there in Canada. And he wrote just uh, tons of books on the back specifically because he injured his back earlier in his life and has, has rehabbed some famous uh, power lifters and Olympic lifters and a lot of people who deal with massive amounts of weight on a regular basis through their spine and has brought them back to their careers. And he talks about how bodybuilding not on purpose, but polluted its way into our methodology of training here in the U.S. And for instance, like you've probably heard of the obligatory chest day, back day, leg day, things like that. Well, when you go to pick up something off the floor, do you just use your leg that day? Do you just use your chest that day? No, you use your total body as a unit. And so we've kind of this, this ideology of, you know, you need a chest day, a back day and a leg day has separated us from training functional motions and training in a, in, a, in a way that utilizes your whole body together and is relied more on heavy weight and breaking your body parts up, which doesn't link your neural systems together and doesn't let you move properly. Yeah, you know, a simple example that illustrates that, even taking it out of the sports arena, is for the average person who has to bend over and make their bed. You know, you have to be able to hinge at the hips properly. You have to have an engaged core. You have to have some flexibility in your hamstrings. Uh, if your shoulders aren't uh, in a properly retracted position, you're going to tilt forward a little too much and compress your disc. So I, I would totally agree with that. Going to the gym and just knocking out 100 knee extensions and bicep curls is not likely to promote that safe movement pattern. So I think that's a terrific point. What are your thoughts on things like kettlebell swings as an alternative to deadlifts? So I, I like kettlebell swings. And I do think that, so again, kind of another example of bodybuilding polluting itself into the training realm. If you pretty much pulled any strength and conditioning coach from probably the last 
10 years back or 20 years back, they're going to go bread and butter every day. What should you do? You need to bench every week. You need to squat every week. You need to deadlift every week. And I'm sure that, you know, you and me, I, when I came up, that's what you did. You know, I mean, you had a you know a deadlift week. You had a bench week. You know, you always, you had different, and, and they constantly were harping on these three things. But I think that the kettlebell swing in combination with like an RDL with lighter weight or combination with some other hip hinging exercises can eliminate the need for a heavy deadlift completely. So I think RDL Romanian deadlift. Yes. Okay. And I, you know, I think we actually have a good YouTube clip of some of these exercises from our, our second episode uh, that again, we'll link to when we talked with Ryan, as he talked about a few of these. So you answered some of this a little bit, but are you against deadlifts only or weight training in general for sports such as volleyball and basketball? So I want to start with saying that for instance, so I look at you, you're a very tall man, right? My seven foot athlete that I'm working with now, putting a barbell on his back or your back and the distance that you guys need to cover to get to parallel and back and strapping tons of weight on there when the sport that you, you know, you played and also my, my current patient athlete plays, it requires you never to dip below a quarter squat. I mean, when you jump, you're not squatting all the way to the floor and then jumping up. So what is the purpose with strapping you down with all this weight and then, you know, making you go to the floor and up when you, this could be achieved with a high box squat, this could be achieved with uh, possibly hang power cleans, this could be achieved with just band resistance jumping squats. There's so many other things we can do that's going to protect your back as a, as a basketball player specifically or a volleyball player or a soccer player. People who are more cardio-based in their sports, that the need for a heavy deadlift or heavy weightlifting for them, I, I just don't see the purpose. And I would go a step further to reference one of the probably greatest NFL players of all time, even though I you know wish he didn't play for the Patriots and play for the Panthers, is Tom Brady. And if you look at Tom Brady and you follow his exercise regimen, he does very little weight training at all. His resistance bands, plyo, core work, and I don't think you could argue that his resume shows that that doesn't work. So Sounds like you're very much in favor of functional sport-specific training versus cookbook style of weight training. Do you think increasing muscle bulk from weight training will help prevent back injuries? No. And the reason why, I used to believe this. I used to believe that if you had a you know, pair of spinals and a big thick back that you're guaranteed you are insulating yourself away from back injury. But as I, you know, I've seen patients, I've treated power lifters, I've seen crossfitters in my gym, these guys with massive backs and stuff, and they're getting hurt just as much as people that are smaller or have smaller backs. It's, it's all about core stability, being symmetrical and having good pelvis control. I've seen deadlifters on YouTube, you know, herniated disc, picking up 500 pounds and their back was big around than I can put my hands around. So, Well, you covered a lot of the potential pitfalls uh, in terms of exercise programs and back injuries. And I want to shift into what you think an ideal exercise program would actually look like to promote a healthy spine. And we're going to get to that topic right after this break. I often recommend a Mediterranean diet to my patients to promote their health and wellness. And one of the questions that comes up a lot is the idea of calcium intake promoting healthy bones, and in particular, the relationship with dairy products. And through the years, I've read a lot of different information on dairy products. And on today's Health Matters segment, I want to do a brief review and nutritional comparison of dairy and the numerous plant-based milk alternatives that are out there. I was at Trader Joe's recently and I looked on the shelf and there's at least half a dozen different types of quote-unquote milk alternatives that are available. I think it's important that 
before you reach for those, you have a general understanding of the nutritional content of these food options and where they can play a role in your diet. So starting out just with a simple uh, cup of cow's milk, that's going to have about 100 calories in it. And I will tell you right up front, I'm not a big believer in calorie counting. Uh, I don't think the literature supports there's any real long-term useful role in watching your calories with respect to weight. But a cup of cow's milk has about 100 calories, about 13 grams of carbs. And one thing you should know is there's about 13 grams of natural sugars. There's 8 grams of protein and a little bit of saturated fat. You do get about 300 milligrams of calcium, which satisfies about 30% of your daily requirement. And there is certainly some potassium in there. The big issue I see with cow's milk is twofold. Number one, there is a very high number of people who have lactose intolerance and really can't tolerate dairy products. And then there are some who have allergies to the casein, which is the main protein in dairy. And that can trigger a whole host of problems, uh, such as respiratory issues with increased mucus production and a fair number of gastrointestinal symptoms. The literature is somewhat mixed with regards to the inflammatory reaction that dairy products can produce. Uh, There are some evidence that suggests it increases inflammation in our body, and there's even some evidence that suggests the opposite way. So I think there are enough issues with dairy products and cow's milk that it's reasonable to look at alternatives. Additionally, a lot of the milk that's sold in this country has added hormones, antibiotics, and other chemicals that just aren't healthy for you. The one plant-based milk alternative I use quite a bit is almond milk. Now, almond milk is very low calorie, uh, about 30 calories in a cup of almond milk. Um, It lacks a fair amount of protein, so you really don't want to count on that for your protein needs. But as you'll find, most of these plant-based alternatives are fortified with calcium, potassium, and fat-soluble vitamins. So you can get a fair number of your fat-soluble vitamins through drinking these products. So almond milk is typically pretty bland, and but you can use it in really any recipe, put it in your smoothies. Um, it has a low glycemic index, uh, which can be a challenge from dairy milk or cow's milk. Cow's milk has definitely been shown to increase your insulin or cause an insulin spike after you drink it. And you don't see that with the almond milk. So it's one of my favorites. And again, I think you should always look at unsweetened products. Stay away from the added sugar. Almond milk is quite easy to make on your own at home. There's multiple recipes on YouTube where you can buy raw almonds and uh, blend them and pretty much just strain it with a cheesecloth and have some fresh almond milk available. Another popular milk alternative is coconut milk. Coconut milk is a little higher in the fat content, particularly the saturated fat content, which for some is not a problem. And for others, it can be depending on your, your lipid metabolism and your genetics. Uh, you may or may not want to entertain coconut milk. It has less sugar than cow's milk, but it doesn't really have much protein. In fact, it has almost no protein. So keep that in mind as well. Coconut is really not a nut, quite safe for people with nut allergies. And it's a good vegan alternative if that's your food plan. Another milk product that you can buy is oat milk. Now, oat milk is about 130 calories per cup and is somewhat in between in terms of the carbohydrate intake of rice milk and dairy milk. So oat milk has about 24 grams of carbs per cup and five grams of sugar with four grams of protein. 
You can easily make this by soaking steel-cut oats or whole oats in water and then straining them. It is higher, though, in the carbohydrate intake and fiber than most milks, but it's low in fat, contains numerous B vitamins and trace minerals like magnesium and phosphorus, and again, it's likely fortified with fat-soluble vitamins. Oat milk also is vegan, if that's important and a part of your plan, and it's really a great option for those who are allergic or sensitive to soy or dairy milk. Pea milk, that's P-E-A, pea milk, is another alternative made from split yellow peas, and it's a newer plant-based option that's on the market. If you drink a cup of unsweetened pea milk, it's low in calories at about 70 calories per cup, and it does have 8 grams of protein, which is nice. Um, it's similar to potassium content and has fortification typically, again, with vitamins A, D, and calcium, and oftentimes with omega-3 fatty acids. So it's another good alternative if you have lactose intolerance. Rice milk may be one of the more popular alternatives, and I typically try and stay away from rice milk simply because it has much higher level of carbohydrate intake per cup. So about 23 grams of carbs per cup, which for many of us who are trying to watch carbs to keep our blood sugars in a proper range, this can be problematic. In fact, if you have a bowl of oatmeal with rice milk, that can create quite a insulin spike. However, uh, it is enjoyed by many people. Uh, rice milk, though, has very little protein. It has about two and a half grams of saturated fat and is really high in the carbs and sugar. So be careful how much rice milk that you are drinking. But again, it's another good alternative if you have allergies to dairy, soy, or nuts. That leads us to soy milk, which gives you about 80 calories per cup, four grams, about a gram of sugar, but it does give you a pretty good punch with seven grams of protein and there is about half a gram of saturated fat. If you're going to drink soy milk, make sure it's a whole soy product and not an alternative product that's a fortification of soy. There is some research questioning the safety of soy product intake in terms of the effects on your hormones. Uh, I, I think some of that, though, you can just take with a grain of salt. If, if you have soy milk, don't have it every day. It's okay to have periodically if you want as a replacement to dairy. Soy milk is cholesterol-free and low in saturated fat and can make a good alternative to dairy for some people. The last milk product that I think is popular or becoming more popular is hemp milk. Hemp milk does come from the hemp seeds. And no, if you drink hemp milk, you're not going to test positive for marijuana on your urine drug screen. Hemp milk is a good option. It's higher in fat content and particular omega fatty acids which do have some cardiovascular protective effect. It's a bit creamier and does have a bit of a unique taste. And I have found hemp milk to be slightly more expensive. So there you go. There's the lowdown on the milk alternatives. If you're looking for options other than dairy due to allergy or other medical issues, uh, I really like the almond milk as a primary alternative. But any of these uh, can make for a great replacement product. And it's really not a bad idea to alternate these and even try and make some of these on your own. Again, I hope these tips help you to stay healthy and stay out of the doctor's office, because as you know, your health definitely matters. We're back here with Jake Beeman, physical therapy assistant with Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, and he's breaking down the whole topic of back injuries in sports and really correcting some misinformation that's out there in the fitness world. So we're going to move on now. Jake, what do you consider an ideal exercise program that promotes a healthy spine for 
let's break it down into different groups of people, you know, weekend warriors versus amateur athletes. And then also we see a lot of seniors who, you know, people are living longer and they want to play pickleball. They want to golf. They still want to run, you know, they don't want to be sitting around watching TV. So what are some key elements in an ideal exercise program? So I think that with any exercise program, we need to take into account that regardless of your age, you still need to hip hinge. You still need to be able to squat to some degree. You still need to be able to, to walk slash run. So all that being said, we need to take into account that if you're doing an exercise program, you want to make sure you preserve and maintain these important functional body movements. So to me, what would vary between a youth athlete, an elderly person, uh, a weekend warrior is going to be the intensity and the exercise selection. But we are going to hit these same systems of the body with various different training exercises. Say those three again. Hip hinging, squatting, and for athletes, jumping. But for just, you know, you don't, I would say as a weekend warrior and, and elderly people, you wouldn't, jumping would maybe we could exclude that, but definitely walking or running. And then you, so you set that as your foundation and then you gear exercises to maintain those functional abilities. Yes. Okay. Very good. Uh, and then, you know, with golfers, again, we touched on it a little bit. Do you have any simple things that golfers can do just to protect their back? Yes. I want to start off by saying that there are, uh, there's a specific Titleist back program for golfers and Graham, who's the head of PT here is certified in that. And I do also believe there's a therapist, uh, Jackson, I believe who is out in Matthews who's certified in this. Now I have treated golfers and I understand the gist of what they need. And I'm going to share with you that today, which I've worked with golfers that have worked. But if people seek, want to seek further and more, get more specific in details of like a golf swing and things like that, I would, you know, turn them on to to Graham and Jackson. So a lot of anti-rotational core exercises, you want to train your body to be able to resist a little bit of that back rotation you're getting off the club. So that club's generating feedback when you swing and you need to be able to resist that throughout your core. And next I would look at your mobility, mobility. So I get golfers that come in and are like, oh yeah, I swing like this. And then I test them thoracically and, and they don't have it. You know, they're at a desk throughout the week and then they're going to go generate all this torque through all these stiffened muscles and that's, that's a lot of their problem there. And then last, I would go with hip stability. So again, talking about being asymmetrical, you're constantly doing hip extension, hip extension, hip extension on one side of your swing phase, right? When you're swinging that club and the other side, you're not getting it. So a lot of these golfers' pelvises get torqued. And so doing hip stability exercises like single leg glute bridges and things like that, some of the stuff Ryan touched on is going to help realign you. And so you should almost integrate that like, okay, I played golf. Now, when I get home, I'm going to do these 30 minutes of hip stability, mobility exercises. Or before I go play, I'm definitely going to do the mobility. And then after I get done, I'm going to, you know, kind of treat myself with the stability and the core exercises to kind of cancel out what you did with the golfing. I think the take home point there is that if you're a golfer and you're listening, don't just golf. Yes. Don't just get out of bed, make your tee time, play 18 holes because then you will eventually end up on my schedule or someone quite similar. So really integrate focused flexibility programs, using a foam roller, doing some hip work. And there's a lot, a lot of literature out there. And as always, I recommend that you seek help and guidance with an expert. There's no substitute for one-on-one attention. And you mentioned before your interest in CrossFit. Uh, I consider this personally to be a very high-level exercise with significant safety concerns. I see a lot of patients coming in with injuries from CrossFit. How can someone tell that they're physically ready to handle a program such as CrossFit? I'll be remiss to, to go without doing a little 
defense of CrossFit before I go into how they could, you can tell. Yeah. So in defense of CrossFit, so CrossFit's design is to be universally scalable. So for instance, if the exercise is a snatch, which um, for listeners who don't know that, it's taking a barbell from the floor to your, your hip crease and then generating it overhead very quickly. And you have an athlete who cannot do that. I mean, obviously, that's a very, I consider a snatch probably one of the most complex, a tier three movement. It's one of the most complex movements you could do. And so I'm not going to ask someone who comes in right away to be able to snatch. So what we'll have them do is the way CrossFit instructors are educated is you take that exercise down the chain of exercises that may lead to them just holding an empty rod over their head and squatting down and coming back up. Do you, you know, to try to mimic a, a snatch. And as they progress, you can add these different exercises so they can still do the same workouts as everyone else, but it's been scaled down. Also, there was a comprehensive study done with uh, personal trainers, uh, certified strength and conditioning coaches, and some sports med doctors that found CrossFit to be no more dangerous than marathon running. So if you look at those two sports that you're looking at the same injury rate or issues, that's what they found. But I do agree with you that CrossFit takes a certain skill because it is high intensity. You can't go in there and and not know how to control your core. You can't go in there and, and just throw a barbell around. You're going to end up on our schedules. You know, so um, yeah. I think that how you can avoid that is most good CrossFit gyms will have a foundations program that they should take you through and they should walk you through all these complex motions and educate you and teach you about these. And then when you're in a class setting, that coach should be watching you more than anyone else because you're new and, and you need want to make sure that you're, you're landing these movements and you're not getting pain. That was how I would think that you could do CrossFit safely. And my advice for any exercise program, whether it's CrossFit or Orange Theory or if you're getting into yoga, I always tell individuals, start where you are and compete with yourself, not the person next to you. I think I see injuries occur when individuals try and do something that they're not ready for. And it's for the wrong reasons, whether it's to impress someone or they feel somewhat ashamed or embarrassed that they're not as strong as they want to be. So I think if you get a good coach and you have reasonable expectations, you can do quite well in these types of activities. All right. uh, You've done a great job today breaking down this topic. I want to close with just a few kind of personal questions that I know our listeners love. Can you share with our listeners your typical weekly exercise program? Yes. As you kind of alluded to before, I am kind of a CrossFit junkie. So <laughs> do CrossFit typically four to five days a week. I got to give a shout out to CrossFit North Lake. That's where I go. But anyway, so uh, they do a good job programming. We, we hit a lot of stuff. So what I usually reserve is Saturdays. I reserve that for whatever. I kind of look at the workouts they put me through throughout the week and say, we didn't touch on running or we didn't touch on some unilateral or side to side motions. And then I kind of go and I just build myself a little custom body weight or kettlebell workout that'll address what I didn't get to do on Saturday. And uh, that's kind of my week. And do you have any other health habits that you want to share with our listeners that you think are uh, successful and other people could adopt? Yeah, I would say right away, probably the best advice I ever got from my wrestling coaches, you cannot out train a bad diet. You can train as hard as you want, as long as you want, as much as you want, at as high intensity as you want. You will see no physical benefits. You will see no changes unless your diet is dialed in. So I definitely control my eating. I live off a 80-20 rule, which is Monday through Friday. I have five to six meals a day I eat pretty strict. And then Saturday, I let it hang out a little bit. I might have a burger or something or beer or two, and then I tighten it back up Sunday and then right back to the next week. Well, if you've heard any of my other episodes, you know that that is music to my ears uh, I really feel like you've got to put good nutrition, good fuel in your body if you want to have optimal results. 
And then lastly, do you have any favorite apps, books, or other tools that you want to share with our listeners that they could benefit from? Uh, yeah. So um, one of them I really like, if you are a CrossFitter that was catching on to this, uh, there's a really cool Instagram page called Mobility Wad which is mobility workout of the day. Um, so it's just different mobility techniques you can do, different stretches and things like that. Also, I want to put a plug in. Uh, Ryan referenced him on one of the other shows. Uh, Kelly Starrett has a book that is, I literally, re- I call it the plumbing manual to the body. It's It breaks down with all the lifts, all of the complex motions you can do in training and shows you, okay, if you're having pain here, go the back to this appendix here, do these mobilization exercises here. So it's kind of like a broken down, simplistic version of like how to physical therapy yourself, if there was such a book. And it's called Becoming a Supple Leopard. All right. Well, we'll put links to those uh, tools in our show notes for sure. I hope you guys who are listening get a chance to check some of this stuff out. And I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Jake Beeman. He really went into a deep dive on how to prevent back injuries during your athletic training, uh, regardless of the sport. He gave us some terrific tips here. Uh, We'll have all this in the show notes, and I hope you take some time to review this and implement some of these tips into your own life. Thank you, Jake. I really enjoyed the interview. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lockia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com.